Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. We're continuing our series called Honorable. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. I love being a dad. Parenting is the most amazing, beautiful, most difficult adventure that I have ever been on. And if I'm honest with you, most of the time I feel like I'm just winging it. (laughs) Because just as I feel like I get a handle on where my children are, they get to the next stage of life and I'm lost again. I think kids should be born with instructions tattooed on their backs. Very specific instructions. Strong-willed, you're going to need to do this. However it works. And then they can fade when the child turns 18 and leaves home. Or if they don't leave home, they could still be there. You need to leave home, and then (laughs) it'll fade when they leave. I I don't know, but I I find myself wanting to grow as a dad, as a father, and also by nature of my job working with students, I find myself reading a lot about teenagers. Well, I came across this article this past week to help me improve my parenting. It's called Rules Teens Want Their Parents to Follow. This is, this is gold right here. So if you're a student in this room, this is the time you'll be taking notes. Um, so apparently this person surveyed a bunch of teenagers and asked what rules they would like in their home and begins with this. First rule, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> right? Apparently teenagers feel like their parents are always telling them what to do and they don't like that. Here's another one. Don't assume you know what's best for me. It goes on to say, because typically you're wrong. (laughs) These are good, right? You can see that you're going to begin applying these. Uh, Let me make my own mistakes when it comes to tattoos and piercings. It's a horrible rule. (laughs) Give me my own credit card. Give me the keys to the car when I ask. Let me set my own curfew and don't worry about where I'm going or who I'm going with. And when I'm gone, don't call me every 15 minutes to ask where I am. I don't think so. (laughs) Don't embarrass me, which is a great one, because I feel like sometimes my mere existence embarrasses my children. (laughs) Followed shortly by, don't hug, kiss, or hold my hand in public. And let's be honest, parents, don't we get this kind of distinct pleasure out of doing that to our children? (laughs) That's my little girl who's 15. Um, Never ever use the phrase, because I said so. I asked my kids after I read this article, what rules do you think we should have in this house? What rules would you set? And I got things like free cash, No bedtimes, uh, school two days a week when it happens. All of these really great rules. Instead, however, I have these very oppressive rules like clean your room, and if you get it out, put it away, and don't skateboard in the house, and the ceiling fan is not a merry-go-round, get your stuff off of it, and all that kind of, right, those really oppressive rules. Because as parents, we know we have to set guidelines. We have to put boundaries in place. We have to draw some lines. And let's say, parents, if we are are drawing lines here, teenagers want to draw lines 
in South Salem. <laughs> and largely, parenting a teenager is living in this tension where they are pushing against the authority. They're pushing against the rules that are set. And they are asking, why? Why would you draw a line here? It should be out here. And so we give our explanation of why we would draw that line. And they say, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. And then you say this, because I said so. <laughs> because I'm the parent. Someday you'll understand. And then you offer that blessing over your children when you say, someday I hope you have a child just like you. <laughs> right? <laughs> Those words are never spoken as a blessing, by the way. Those words are always spoken as a little bit of a curse, but you live in this, this tension, this pushback against authority. I try and remind my children of that John Cougar Mellencamp song, the authority song. If you remember it, he says, I fight authority, authority always wins. I can remember one time I was having a um, discussion with one of my daughters and she just said, you know what, dad, I will listen. I will obey, I won't argue but you have to know my life is gonna be miserable. <laughs> and I was like, my work here is done. <laughs> right? Because here's the principle. Here's the principle that we need to understand. See, students think that the more that they can push the boundaries, the further out that they can draw the lines, the more freedom they will have. But the reality is, the reality is the more that they live within the framework set up for them, the more that they live within the boundaries, the more freedom they will have, right? Because when they push the limits, they lose freedom. When they live within the boundaries, they gain freedom. This isn't just a student issue. This isn't just something with teenagers. It's an all of us issue because all of us tend to bristle or push against authority. All of us kind of want to draw our own lines as to how we're supposed to live. But maximum freedom is found under the authority of God and God calls us to live under the authority and the rules and the boundaries that are put up around us. And we all have people in authority over us. If you still live at home, you have your parents. Maybe you have authorities in the workplace. We have government authorities. Last time I checked, none of you are master and commander of the world, right? Nobody in this room. So we all live under authority. And the question is then, how do we honor the authorities that are put in place over us? How do we honor those above us? And quite honestly, why do we even wanna do that? Why would we want to honor those above us? And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. Last week, Rod kicked us off on our honorable series, and he gave us the definition of what it means to honor. And really, he said it's about an attitude. It's about an attitude of love. But here again, here's a definition of what it means to honor. It means to esteem, to show great respect, to ascribe weight, or to value at a price. You see, the Greek word in the New Testament literally means to value at a price. The root word of the word honor is a word that means to put a price tag on something. Like, what is this worth? So we're saying when we honor, part of it is what is that person worth? And far too often we think people are only worth what they can give to us. Like, I will honor that person more because that person takes care of me or provides for me or gives me stuff or thinks that I'm really great, and I will honor that person less because they don't really deserve it, and besides, they don't do anything for me anyway. But we see that Christ died for all. God so loved the world. 
which means everyone is worthy of honor. What are those people worth? And this morning we're gonna talk about elders and leaders and those in authority and in political power. But first we're gonna just talk about our elders, those older than us. Leviticus 19.32 says this, stand up in the presence of the elderly and show respect for the aged. Fear your God, I am the Lord. Now another translation says it this way, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Now, I'm not going to be that guy that stands here on the platform and gives you a number for what it means to be aged. That's not my place. I don't want to get those encouragement cards. <laughs> so for the purposes of today's sermon, we will just define aged as anyone from Steve Fowler and older. <laughs> That's how we'll define it. All right. So uh, he's not here this weekend. We can talk about him. And you're not going to tell, right? Okay, good. Uh, no, we, we'll define it this way. And I know we're putting a number on it, but a number really doesn't do it justice. But the United Nations, in its uh, concise report on the world population, defines age as 60 plus. Now, I understand that you can be 40 and be old, and you can be 60 and be young. But just for purposes of some of these statistics, the United Nations says 60 plus uh, is aged. And you have to know that this older generation is the fastest growing age group. As a matter of fact, last year, 60 plus, the growth rate of that age group was three times the growth rate globally of any other population. Three times. This is a rapidly expanding age group globally. And so here's my question. Is our attitude towards the elderly, towards our elders, towards the aged, one of honor? Or is it forgetfulness? Maybe it's indifference. Maybe it's even disrespectful. What are those people worth to us? I read an essay several years ago, and in this essay, it had this quote. It said this, our day is indifferent to old ideas and even considers that their age makes their value questionable, but jumps at a new idea with enthusiasm and high hope a hope which is high because it has not been accustomed to being disappointed. I make no guess as to when this disposition was born to us, but it certainly is ours, was not possessed by any century before us, is our particular mark and badge. Now, this wasn't written several years ago. This was written by Mark Twain in February of 1890. And he's marking a cultural shift. He's saying that previously, in my parents' generation, we had this respect for old ideas and in that respect for those people. And we thought their way was the right way. And he's saying my generation marks a cultural shift, this age of discovery and invention where all this new stuff is, is coming of age. And we're beginning to see, wait, our ideas are better than their ideas, which led to we are better than them. And I think this is an idea that we continue to carry forth today. We have this idea of, oh, their ideas are stuck in the past, right? We know what's going on. If our elders were so smart, why didn't they invent text messaging? Why, why would they wear a powder blue ruffled shirt with a tux? I've seen the pictures. They think Instagram is just a really fast cracker. They don't know. 
It'll come. <laughs> so it's easy for us to be dismissive, right? It's easy for us to feel like we can leave them behind because we are forging into the future. And it's not like we're as bad as you know, Eskimos when an elderly person kind of outlives their usefulness. We don't put them on an ice floe and send them out to sea. But we live in a society that is enamored with youth because we love independence and individualism and self-reliance. And we love our Protestant work ethic, which says, you know, you have value when you can work, but what happens when you no longer are working? Do you lose your value? In our digital age, we know where we go for information. It's called the internet. We used to go to our elders to ask. Now we just go to the internet. How well do we honor the elderly? Because truth be told, what we have and who we are stands on their shoulders. We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. I don't know if you ever even think about that as you come to church here and you sit in this place and, and you worship. Do you ever think about the many people that gave and sacrificed and served so that we could have this place? What we have here stands on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And so I would say this to the elders, to the elders in this room, I want to apologize. I want to apologize for when the younger generation has not honored you the way you deserve to be honored. Because I know we haven't always done so. And I would say this, we need you. This younger generation needs you. We need your wisdom, your experience, your servant's heart, your prayers. The younger generation has watched so many of its leaders just go off the rails morally, fall by the wayside, that they've become jaded in leadership. We need to hear your stories. We need to see you finishing strong. I love that this place is multi-generational. I love that we can come together like that. The younger generation needs the older generation. And to the non-elders in this room, we need to honor better. There's a quote in the Apocrypha that says this, dishonor not the old, we shall be numbered among them. <laughs> it's coming. And so two quick things. I think we need to listen better. Younger generation, we need to listen better to our elders. Proverbs 20, 29 says, the glory of the young is their strength. The gray hair of experience is the splendor of the old. Is that how you feel about gray hair? Is it, is it splendor, right? Those aren't wrinkles, those are survival lines. We need to listen better. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is the song of Moses. And in it, Moses says, these aren't just words. This is your life. Hang on to these. And one of the things he says is this. Remember the days of old. Consider the years long past. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elders and they will teach you. Wise counsel to the younger is the duty of the elders. And younger generation, we need to listen better. When my wife and I were in college, we were sitting around, we weren't married at the time, but we were sitting around one day talking about how we had nobody older than us 
to talk to even, to speak into our worlds. We both lived on campus and campus was just 18 to 22 year olds, which is kind of a very narrow worldview. So one afternoon we walked off campus and right off campus was a nursing home and we just kind of wandered in to the front desk and we said, we want to visit someone once a week. Do you have someone that you could introduce us to? She said, sure. So she walked us down the hall and into the room of this man named Raymond. And at first, Raymond was a little taken aback because he didn't know if we were family or something like that. He was like, am I related to you? Why are you here? And we were just there to hear stories. So Raymond started telling us a story about breaking his leg, broke his leg once, and and he had to ride in a really bumpy car to the hospital, and he told us how bad it hurt. We listened to his story and and, uh, walked out, and the next week we came in, and Raymond told us a story about how one time he broke his leg (laughs) and had to ride in a really bumpy car. In the rest of the semester, Raymond told us a story about how he broke his leg and how he had to ride in the car. And then he told us more stories about his life and his perspective and his wisdom and what went on, and we were the better for it. And it was a joy to listen to him. Elders, you have a lifetime of experience that has been hard fought for you in many ways. And we would love it if you would share it. You've made good decisions, you've made bad decisions that we could learn from as well. And younger generation, we need to listen better. And we also need to love better. We need to find tangible ways to love the elder, to treat them with respect. First Timothy chapter five, never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as you would to your own father. Talk to younger men as you would to your own brothers. Treat older women as you would your mother and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. We need to find practical, tangible ways to love our elders. How can we reach out? How can we treat them and serve them like we should our own parents? China has the world's largest population, but they also have the world's largest aging population. And some statistics say that within the next 10 to 20 years, 25% of China will be 60 years or older. And it's having huge ramifications on their economic infrastructure and how they can produce things and um, that. But it's, it's also having a social implication. They are having to legislate care for the elderly. China used to have the fewest amount of nursing homes in the world, and now it's a booming business. And so on the books are rules like, you must visit your aging parents regularly. And if you don't, you can be fined. There's also legislation that says you cannot, as a child, force your parents to give you money, which should be kind of (laughs) universal. But these things should not be legislated, right? They don't need to be legislated because we should be caring for those people. And so I would say this, we need to listen and love Better. And maybe this is something that you talk about as a family. Who is it that you can lean into and listen to and hear their story? And who is it that you can go out and serve that can't quite do those things for themselves anymore? How can we be better that way? I also want to talk about other authorities, other another uh, group who is over us, and that is political leaders. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Just briefly, if you want to grab one from the pew there, it's on page 1939. Now, very few things cause as much division, anger, name-calling as politics. 
You know, maybe close second is, is your favorite sports team, but usually politics leads the way. And usually when you talk politics, you're just talking politics to hear the other person's opinion. And if they agree with your opinion, then they're brilliant and they can be your friend. But if they disagree with your opinion, then they're ignorant and they just don't know enough yet. And so you have to share what that is. Because politics makes something rise up in us. It's one of those things where we just want to push against that authority that's in place. And so let's read what Peter has to say about it. Now, as Peter is writing here, he's gonna do uh, three things that we're gonna read. First, he's gonna tell them what their identity is. He's gonna say, this is who you are. And because this is who you are, this is the principle, this is the, the pattern of how you should live. And I'm gonna give you an example of that. And so he goes on to give several examples. We'll read just one, but, but here's who they are. Verse nine, he says, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people. Once you didn't have any identity, but now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, and now you have received God's mercy. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you nailed a ribbon to the cross, you became just that, God's very own possession. And he's saying, this is who you are, and because this is who you are, this is how you should live. Verse 11, dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, and here's the why. Why do we live this way? Why do we honor our elders? Why do we even talk about what it means to be honorable? He says this, so they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God. That's it, that's the why. We don't live honorable lives so that people look at us and say, oh, you're so good, you're so nice, you're so kind. You must have had great parents, way to go. We live honorable lives so that people will look at our lives and see that there's something different about us that didn't come from us. We live honorable lives so that we can share about the glory of God so that he receives the honor. And then he says, because, because you're God's very own possession, because you're holy, because you're chosen, because you're royal, don't let that go to your head. Don't think, oh, that makes us better than this society around us. He said, for the Lord's sake, respect all human authority. And that word there is, is submit to. Submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. And then again, he says, respect everyone, honor everyone, and love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God and respect the king. Fear God and honor the emperor. So he tells us that we need to submit and to honor, and those words make us uncomfortable when it comes to our political leaders. And this isn't a new issue. You see, 1 Peter was written somewhere between 60 and 65 AD, and the emperor at the time was Nero. And if there's a man who is worthy of less honor than Nero, or than, than Nero, I don't know who it is. 
Nero had a tremendous hatred for Christians. And the story goes that Rome burned and he fiddled and then he blamed the Christians. The historian Tacitus says it this way, that he covered Christians with the skins of beasts and they were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses. They were doomed to the flames and burnt. They served as nightly illumination in the garden of Nero. His hatred is well documented. Was Peter's statement an endorsement of Roman authority or activity? No, not at all. But it was saying that we need to live in such a way as to honor the authorities around us. We need to submit to the system that we've been given. Now, I know that we bristle with that, and right away we want to say, but there, there are certain things that the system tells us to do that we don't want to do. And yes, the Bible does have examples of civil disobedience. And we live in that tension. We live in that tension of when do we kind of say, no, that's enough. Daniel chapter three, when the king said, bow to the idol, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said no. And God rescued them for that. But how did they do it? If you read that story, they did it in a way that was honorable. In Acts chapter three, Peter and John are walking to the temple and there's the, the crippled man there and they heal him and then the council says, guys, you can't talk about Jesus all the time. You can't go around healing people. Stop it. Acts chapter four, verse 19, Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. We can't do it. There are times of civil disobedience. We live in this tension, but we still submit to and honor our political leaders. Romans 13, one says this. Everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. If God is ultimately behind all authority, maybe our issues with authority are really spiritual issues. Maybe they're spiritual issues. Why is it that when we talk about politics or political leaders, something rises up in us and a lot of what that something is is fear? There's something of fear in that. And it's because we've elevated political leaders to a position that they weren't meant to hold in our lives. Somehow we think that ultimate authority lies with political leaders. And when the wrong person in our mind gets elected, we feel like it's the end. We begin talking about politics. Instead of terms like difficult or troubling, we use terms like devastating and fatal. And when we disagree with the person who is in charge, it's not that they are mistaken, it's that they are now evil and they lack the moral legitimacy to lead. The main problem in this world is sin. And the only solution to that problem is God and his grace. But far too often, we see something else as the main problem. And when we replace sin with, with some issue, then we feel like, well, then there's got to be a leader who is going to address this issue. And so we place our hope in this leader and this issue to be solved isn't ever going to get at the root of what the real issue is. Jonathan Edwards, pastor, theologian, played a critical role in the first Great Awakening he lived in the early 1700s, and he gave a, 
um, theology for citizenship, how Christians should live in the world and even how they should relate to the political systems that they live in. He gave a six-point theology, and point number four is this. Christians should remember that politics is comparatively unimportant in the long run. See, here's what he taught. He said the key moments in history aren't big elections. The key moments in history aren't decisive wars. The key moments in history are spiritual awakenings. Those are key. He says, so the most important thing Christians can do for the good of their country is to pray for revival. Spiritual transformation brings more positive change to the world than political or social revolution. He taught from God's perspective that one true Christian, however humble his birth and low his standing, however poor or ignorant or unknown, is more valuable than many great men of the world, kings and princes, men of great power and policy that are honored and make a great fissure but are wicked men and reprobates. You see, we are to pray for our leaders and we are also to pray for revival because that's what makes the difference. We always think, oh, if we elect the right person, then that will solve this problem. But 1 Peter chapter 2 seems to say, how do you want to make a positive change? How do you want to bring honor to God? Well, submit and honor the leaders that are in place. And somehow God's going to work that and use that. You see, we live for God's kingdom, not our own kingdom. We live for his agenda, not our own social agenda. And our first task is to give him glory It's to further his kingdom. And so I wanna be a person that honors my elders. And I wanna be a person that honors political leaders. And I wanna do it in such a way as to bring honor to God. I wanna close with these questions, just as reminders. Question number one is this. Do I honor my elders by listening and loving? Is that who we are? And maybe you can just begin to pray, God, is, that, is there someone in my world that I could just seek out and listen and love and serve? Second question is this, do I spend time praying for my leaders and for revival? Again, when you are tempted to forward or to post, I would say instead pray. God's calling us to pray for our leaders and to pray for revival that's gonna make a real difference. And finally, to just kind of wrap these up, do others see the glory of God in my words and actions? Because ultimately it's about giving honor to God and I want to point to him. We're gonna close with a, a worship song and a, a time of prayer. And as the worship team comes up, I wanna read 1 Timothy chapter two, starting in verse one, it says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. We wanna be an honorable people who lives that way. Would you pray with me? 
Jesus, we thank you for your word and we thank you for our identity that we find in you. We thank you that we are your very own possession. I pray that you would help us to listen and love and honor our elders and I pray that you would help us to honor political leaders and to continue to pray that this world knows the truth of your grace and your love. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.